Did you know that Nika AATC offers self-paced online courses on a growing range of topics aimed at helping you improve health outcomes for people with HIV? These interactive courses can typically be completed in about an hour and cover multidisciplinary topics such as smoking cessation in people with HIV, geriatric assessment and integration and models of care, managing difficult behaviors in HIV care settings, and using Zoom as a virtual workspace. Self-paced online courses are offered on RISE, Nika AATC's online learning platform. Courses are designed for healthcare providers providing patient care for people with HIV, including physicians, physician assistants, nurses, pharmacists, case managers, outreach workers, and other disciplines. To explore online courses for HIV care professionals, navigate to www.nikaatc.org slash rise-courses. That's www.nikaatc.org forward slash R-I-S-E dash C-O-U-R-S-E-S or click the link in the podcast episode description. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon for part two of our conversation about initiation of HIV treatment. Thanks for being here, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. I'm glad uh, we're here today and um, talking about this important topic of kind of uh, we talked a little bit about what you know what to start and when to start all that. So it's important. I think there's a lot of options for drugs to select for people with HIV. Uh, we're restarting therapy, so you know let's uh, let's just dive in and talk about that, right? So, John, today we're talking about which drugs to select for people with HIV restarting therapy. Why is this important for us to talk about? Yeah, so I think I think we recently went over some of the rapid start data. I think, and hopefully that was helpful for people. And hopefully you're listening to these in sequence. But uh, you know, the rapid start and some of the basics of initiating therapy for people living with HIV, but now today, I thought we would talk a little about some of the considerations for drug selection in, in our patients uh, who are either starting or restarting therapy. You know, all this is from DHHS guidelines, and there's a great section in the guidelines that talk about a lot of this. Um, some of the key things we need to think about, I think, are pretreatment, HIV viral load, and CD4 count. That's always something we want to make sure, probably our most important thing. But I want people to know that a lot of times we start therapy without even having a lot of those labs. So sometimes we start people on the same day. And we don't even have them. So she never should delay therapy for waiting for uh, for some of these labs. And except in a couple of cases, and I'll talk about that. But for naive patients, you know, pretty much, you know, we're starting this therapy before we started therapy before we even have some of these labs done. But another important piece that we have to think about, you know, when we're when we're thinking about antiretroviral therapy is uh, because we have new injectable drugs, uh, we have to think about exposure to uh, prior exposure to cabotegavir. So especially for cab for prep. So for those of you who listen to us a lot, we've talked a little bit about cabotegavir before in some of the HPTN studies that, that have shown these drugs are really effective for prevention. So cabotegavir, which is the long-acting injection, it's key for us to know that because it's an integrase inhibitor. And you, and you can potentially have integrase resistance at baseline. So while oral prep with TDF and FTC um, and TAF-FTC is also important, those uh, likely those patients will only have what we call an M184V even if they have resistance. And there's some data from New York City that's looked at this. 
really showed that people who've had some recent infections, M1E4V is the most common mutation that's there. But for, for patients on CAB, insulin resistance is really the big issue. And so if you have somebody on cabotegravir for prevention, uh, in those OA3 and OA4 studies really showed that some people, it's very rare, may potentially have insulin resistance if they, if they fail PrEP. Which again, Mariana, that's important for us because that, that's the drug that, those are the drug classes that we typically use for treatment IE patients. And it's, it really does affect your drug selection. So, so for cabotegravir PrEP, you really have to either pick a different regimen or make sure you have some of those insulin tests, insulin resistance tests based, um, you know, before you start the, um, uh, those insulin-based regimens for, for our new patients. What about baseline resistance testing? Yeah, so this is an important concept, too, that I think people need to just understand. And, you know, HIV genotypic drug-resistant uh, test results can be very helpful. And, and so, like, a baseline resistance test can also be important for new starts. Um, so if people or if patients are reentering care and they haven't been on therapy for a while, you can either review some of the old tests to see what people have from a resistance standpoint, and then you can kind of use all those resistance mutations and plug them into a couple of databases. One of them I use is Stanford. There's another one called HIV Assist, which is really, really a good one as well. And this can be really helpful in determining what meds are going to work. Um, the ISUSA, Mariana, has a mutation list and a card that you can actually look at to determine what drugs may or may not work. And so most studies really suggest that transmitted resistance, and what I mean by that is people who are transmitting drug resistance from person to, to uh, another, um, it's really kind of focused on a reverse transcriptase and protease genes. You, you, you don't see a lot of transmitted insulin resistance. It's just not common. Um, but it is a concern if you have if you have people who may have been you know on cab for prep as I mentioned before. But in this setting, providers can initiate a non insulin based regimen prior to results, prior to receipt of, of those uh, of those um, resistance results. So the key piece here, I want to make sure I'm very clear on what this is. So basically, if I have HIV and I have resistance mutations, and I um, either inject drugs with somebody or I have unprotected sex with them, and they acquire my virus, they get my resistance mutations. So one of the concerns is that transmitted resistance can be there from people who are, are already on therapy and may be maybe failing and may have resistance, and they'll transmit those resistance mutations to the person that they've infected. So you know, I know we don't like to use the word infected, but it's the only really way to describe what I'm talking about. But know that this is a, a big a big challenge a challenge for people. Um, the guidelines also suggest that we um, do an HLA-B5701, and those who who are HLA-B5701 positive should not receive abacavir. So regimens that do not include abacavir can be initiated if that HLA test uh, are, are, not, are not yet available. This is why a lot of times we don't use abacavir-containing regimens in anybody who's really doing rapid start because we need this HLA test. But I tell you, but even despite the fact that it's it's on the guidelines, it's not as relevant as more because I don't think most people are using um, dolutegravir, bacavir, 3TC, which is still on the DHHS guidelines as a preferred for most drug, but most people aren't using that. Um, and then the choice between an NSTI, a PI, or an NNRTI in those initial regimens really should be guided by the by ARV drug efficacy, barrier to resistance, adverse effect profile, and other reasons why. Uh, comorbidities, concomitant medications, drug interactions, et cetera. But for the most part, I think nowadays in, in, in 2024 and even in the last three, four years, probably even, probably even longer, most providers, I think, are picking an INSTE-based regimen. That's really what's been on the guidelines as preferred regimens for, for people who are starting therapy. Can you expand a little bit on the cabotegravir and PrEP and, resist and the risk of resistance? 
Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that, Mariana, because I think it is an important piece, and I think it is something we should talk a little more about. So um, the bottom line is if you're using cab uh, LA as perhaps a cabotegavir, and again, it's a gravir drug, right? So it's an insti-based regimen. There's concerns about resistance, and, and the guidelines recommend that if you have somebody on cab LA and they fail and they break through, which again, even in the studies, it's very, very rare, but if it happens – you really have to consider not using an insti-based regimen up front until you have resistance testing results. So really what they recommend there is what we call using a boosted PI. So most people would probably use boosted darunavir plus two nucleosides, either TAF or TDF plus FTC or 3TC. So probably most people maybe may even use a drug called Simtuzo, which is a combination of boosted darunavir with TAF FTC. Um, while waiting for the availability of those NSTE genotype results, you can always switch back to an NSTE or keep them on whatever they're on if they tolerate it. All right, so that's really the question. But now the specifics on this are, are really from that HBTN, those HBTN studies that I mentioned. But it, it really showed that people, um, this study was actually done in cisgender men and transgender women, but they reported CAB-resistant mutations in one of the four cases of persons who received CAB-LA, but had undetected HIV infection at baseline. And in four of the nine cases of people who actually acquired HIV infection, then it was one additional HIV acquisition within C-resistance that occurred through oral CAB lead-in phase. So basically, there's about five or six patients who really had CAB, CABotegavir resistance in, in those studies. Um, and, and I think that's really really the case. So, so as a reminder for, for PrEP, when people stop CAB, um, it also tells us that the, the cab LA has a long half-life. So that stays and hangs out for a long period. And it may even be as long as three years in men, four years in women. So determining that resistance risk is, is also a challenge for some people because we have to know the history for our patients on PrEP who acquire HIV since it may alter our, our initial regimen prior to getting resistance testing back. So key here, point here, Marianne, is that PrEP, if you're on cab, you're likely going to start probably a boosted PI. You probably wouldn't start with an integrase inhibitor until you had the NCD resistance test back to make sure that they don't have resistance to CAB. More importantly, other drugs like Bictegavir or Dolutegavir, which is probably what you're going to be using for initial therapy. And that's really key. And some of the data from these studies actually supports that this actually does happen for some people, albeit very, very rare. The implications can be can be can be quite can be quite great. So it sounds like we're using mostly NCD-based regimens. Is that right? Yeah, so that's that's the key, right? So I think we've kind of alluded to this, but really the current guidelines, the recommended initial regimens for most people with DHHS and also in the ISUSA guidelines are all NCD-based regimens. And then, you know, most of them now, all the guidelines pretty much um, include two NCDs. You know, the main ones are Bictegavir or Dolutegavir. I think those are what we call second-generation integrase inhibitors. They tend to be more stable from a resistance standpoint. Uh, and then you add two NRTIs, or, or the other option is to use dolutegavir 3TC. Uh, but NCD-containing regimens really are highly effective and have relatively infrequent treatment, limiting adverse events, and very few drug interactions, really all advantages of therapy, of, of some of these newer therapies. And some of the head-to-head -head comparisons between some of our boosted PIs, um, the industry-based regimens have been better tolerated. They cause fewer treatment discontinuations. And really, the um, even the two-drug regimen of Dolutegavir 3TC, it's very good. It has some caveats with that one, though, because while it's okay, um, for viral loads over 500,000, it didn't do as well. It potentially may not do as well. Um, this also uh, make sure that they don't have any NRTI, so particular 3TC resistance. 
um, and make sure that they don't have hep active hepatitis B. Just remember, anything that contains TAF or TDF in the regimen covers hepatitis B. Drugs that don't, for example, 30-tegavir 3TC is a good example for what we may do for treatment-naive people. If they have active hepatitis B, that wouldn't cover it. So I think also that BIC and dotegavir also have a higher barrier to resistance and, and a lower pill burden than some of the first-generation HD-based regimens that contain delvitegavir or rautegavir. Um, and some of these treatment-emergent resistance mutations has been reported very rarely in individuals receiving um, receiving triple drug uh, triple drug therapy and rarely seen in those receiving BIC-based regimens and transmitter resistance to BIC and dotegavir is rare. So really, the, the INSTEs, really the integrase inhibitors, have really kind of taken over, I think, and are really the, the mainstay of therapy right now. Um, so these medications are really important um, uh, to for us. And, and so the use of these medications before resistance test results are available as possible based on some of the data sets that we have so far. Now, what about pregnancy? Yeah, so this is an important piece too. Um, for patients of childbearing age trying to conceive dietegivir, Based regimens are among the recommended uh, options for most people initiating NRT. Um, there's data uh, in pregnancy for BF-TAF, so BIC-TEGAVIR, TAF-FDC, but it's not recommended on the pregnancy registry at this time, so I, I really don't know if I would recommend that. It's not on the pregnancy guidelines as a preferred drug. Um, LVITEGAVIR-COVI should be reported because of some low levels in second and third trimester. You know, some people probably feel comfortable with TAF now as well um, in pregnancy, but really, uh, I think really any data, any then it's in the antiretroviral pregnancy registry, I think it's really important, um, especially when you have enough exposure to support that you're not going to cause teratogenicity. But I think most people at this point, if you're following the guidelines, you'd most likely use a W-tegavir-based regimen for most people who, um, who, are, who are pregnant at this time. And what about PI and NNRTIs? Yeah, so just a couple quick comments. So you know, for those of us who have been doing this a long time, PI-based regimens really are great. Um, they were great drugs back in the day, but really had greater drug interaction potential. And they also some have have some advantages too. You know, um, re, uh, you can use these obviously in people before resistance tests are available usually. Uh, boosted Darunavir is an appropriate choice because the rate of transmitted PI resistance is very low. Um, and also it has a high barrier to resistance. And, and you know, while use less atazanivir, boosted atazanivir, and also has relatively few metabolic um, adverse effects in comparison to some of our older uh, boosted PI regimens. But atazanivir ritonavir did have a higher rate of adverse effect uh, associated drug discontinuations than darunavir um, uh, or reltegavir. So that's important, too, that atazanivir was not as well tolerated in some of the studies. Um, and it's also associated with slower progression of atherosclerosis, though. So some people think see that as an advantage for atazanivir. And some of these some of these retrospective studies have shown that drugs like darunavir, fosamprenivir, and dinavir, and even ritonavir boosted lopinavir had an increased risk of cardiovascular events. This is a, this association has not been seen with atazanivir. People aren't clear exactly clear why. Although I think that most people who are using a PI are using it for a reason. And really, the cardiovascular stuff, while it's important, I think I don't know how much that often plays in the role of why you're picking that drug if you're not picking an insti based regimen. So non-nukes also are really good in a lot of ways. We still use these medications, especially um, uh, though, like, for example, Favrins and Epiverine, they're good drugs, but they have low barriers to resistance. So the concern is that, that the resistance uh, emergence can actually happen at biologic failure. It's much more common, um, but it's also been reported with some of the newer ones, like the Ravarine, for example. Favrins has a long uh, 
well, track record of widespread use. It's considered safe in persons of childbearing potential. It really has minimal PK interaction with, with, with rivomycins, making it an attractive option if you, if you have somebody who has TB or other mycobacterial diseases. Um, doses have relatively uh, relatively high rates of central nervous system side effects, and uh, rapiparine tends to have fewer adverse events than efavirenz. Um, it also has a favorable lip lipid profile. Um, Rupiprene has a little bit of a disadvantage in that patients with baseline viral loads over 100,000 and T cells less than 200 didn't do as well. I think deraverine is a, also the PPI interaction issue is also an issue, but deraverine is probably available. Uh, it's probably another option that you can use in place of rupiprene to avoid the PPI interaction, has less CNS side effects, um, uh, even over efavirenz, better lipid profile than darunavir and efavirenz. And also has fewer drug interactions. So it all depends on what you're what you're doing and where you are with care. A lot of times, I think we use deraverine in combination with other meds uh, to to treat people who um, uh, who may be treatment experienced. Um, but sometimes we use these in in our earlier patients too, as well, depending on, on the situation. But the vast majority of people, Mariana, today are on insti based regimens, and the PIs and NRTIs have really kind of taken a taken a back uh, kind of a kind of a back uh, you know. Uh, not as commonly used as some of our some of our insti-based regimens. As we begin to wrap up, what else do providers need to know about initiating ART? Yeah, so I think just to remind people that the TAF and TDF, you know, we haven't said much about the new backbones, but these are the most commonly used backbones. I think TAF, if we know this, has less effect on bone and renal function. Though some have uh, have associated TAF with use with some weight gain in some studies, and that's been kind of questionable too. Uh, but though you take your back really um, can also cause some weight gain too. So don't forget that these drugs, while they're great, they can cause some weight gain. Um, some of the recent studies, even with Bictegavir, looking at the 1489 and 1490 study, showed that after about five years, the BIC containing regimens, all with TAF FDC, showed weight gain of about six kilograms in the extension studies after five years. So just keep the weight gain in mind. I don't think we have an answer for why. We don't know what to switch people to if they do develop weight gain, but I think more answers will come as we as we move into this next um into the middle of 2014 and we see or to 2024, sorry, and we see some more um, some more data sets coming out uh, from Corey and some other meetings in the future. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about initiating HIV treatment in this two-part series. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.necaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. Thank mm -hmm. you.
This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.